The purpose of the checklist is not to make better papers. The purpose of the checklist is to train better writers. Hello, and welcome to the Arts of Language podcast with Andrew Poudois, founder of the Institute for Excellence in Writing, or as many like to say, IEW. My name is Julie Walker, and I'm honored to serve Andrew and IEW as the Director of Marketing. Our goal here is to equip teachers and teaching parents with methods and materials which will aid them in training their students to become confident and competent communicators and thinkers. Hi everyone, as you may have heard, this week we're switching it up a bit and are playing for you the audio portion of one of our IEW webinars. Today's episode is part two of that webinar, so if it sounds a bit like you're jumping into the middle of a conversation, well, it's because you are. And like we do for each podcast recording, we'll post any links or websites mentioned at IEW.com slash podcast. Enjoy! All right, sentence openers, there are six of them, and they're in this order, subject, preposition, L-Y, I-N-G, or slash E-D, clausal, um, V-S-S. Those are the six basic ones. And what's interesting is that if you try to teach num the number one opener first, it doesn't make sense to anyone because they already do that all the time. So I actually teach the number two opener first, give them a list of prepositions, and say, okay, your job is, in this paragraph, you have all these decorations. Now you also have to find somewhere in there one preposition. Give them a nice long list, read it out, act it out a little bit, try to get it into them uh, viscerally. And then you've got some source text, and you can read, stop, Okay, what type of opener is that? So I teach the prepositional first, then the LY, then the ING, then the clausal, then the VSS, and I actually teach the first one last because that's when it makes sense. So, okay, these are all different. Okay, now everything else that isn't one of those is probably a subject opener or a variation on that. So you can you can have that up as well. And then we introduced, and this is in the new high school essay intensive that's coming out shortly, three additional what we might call advanced sentence openers. Q for question, T for transition, which is when you start with a non-subordinating conjunction. Thus, indeed. However, you can put that at the beginning of a sentence and it doesn't change the structure of the sentence, doesn't make it into something else. And then, of course, a fragment is when you don't have a complete sentence. And the ironic rule about fragments is that you're only allowed to do them when you can always successfully avoid doing them. <laughs> it's like you can, once you know the rules, then and only then can you break the rules. So those would be advanced stylistic opener, sentence opener style technique. 
And of course, you you don't dump them on the head of the kids all at once. You introduce one new technique. Practice it until it is right, easy. Then you add in another. The sentence opener minimum rule. There's been a little bit of confusion. We have we've had some questions about this. So I wanted to go over it just so that it's clear for everybody who's listening to this. The minimum rule is this, okay? Each sentence opener in every paragraph as possible. Now, what does that mean? If you've only learned a number two sentence opener, then obviously you're going to have just that one, that number two sentence opener in the paragraph and marked, indicated. So if you have three openers, you've learned three, then you need to have three different ones in each paragraph. If you've learned five, you need some longer paragraph links because in order to practice and understand, you want to have those sentences in each one that you've learned so far in that sentence. So if you've learned five, you've got all five. Now once you learn all six, that's when this other part of the rule kicks in right here. No more than two of the same in a row. So if you've got, you know, some pretty long paragraphs, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten, twelve sentences, you're going to have one of each of the six, the basic six you learned, and then the next part of the rule is no more than two of the same in a row. So now you're starting to watch to see that you're not repeating the same one and breaking that rule. So the indicator is to put the sentence number in the margin. So one for subject, two for preposition, three for ly, four for ing, five for clausal, etc. Until you've introduced all of them, you only mark one of each that you're learning that's required. So if you have three on your checklist, you did three, there's three numbers in the margin, okay, you're good to go. However, when you've learned all of them, all six basic openers, that's when you mark every opener in every paragraph of your composition so that you know that you didn't mark two of the same in a row. I hope that's clear. I may have confused you there a little bit, but the idea is you mark one number for the sentence in the paragraph as you are learning them. So if you've learned three sentence openers, you're only going to have three numbers in the margin. After you learn five sentences, then you're going to have five numbers in the margin. Once you've learned all six of them, then you're going to have six numbers, but you will have more than six because at that point, you're going to mark every sentence opener. So then you can look at your pattern. 5, 4, 2, 6, 3, 1, 1, 1, 4. Uh-oh, three ones in a row. Not legal. Okay, we got to change one of those up. We've got the minimum of six, but there's ten sentences, so now we have to be sure not to repeat. All right, I, I hope that's clear. I think it is to some of you. A little bit of confusion. It's one of those things that... You know, isn't terribly complex, but it is 
detailed and you know over the couple decades that I've been doing this you know you learn what works best and while you don't want to be legalistic or rigid I do try to help people understand why you know we do these things the way they do them uh, decorations there's lots of good ones alliteration question conversation quotation three SSS of course stands for three short staccato sentences so that'd be three number six sentence opener sentences in a row similar metaphor dramatic opening closing so there's actually six on the list and I think it's because conversation quotation would go together now if you're writing a story and you're having a nice long dialogue all over the place that doesn't really qualify as conversation however if you personified something had a little conversation or if you brought in kind of in a surprising way some type of conversation then that would act as a decoration quotation is usually most effective if it's a quote from somebody that most people know right it's going to be more effective to quote Mark Twain than Henry Biggenstorf Henry Biggenstorf might have said something as clever or more clever than Mark Twain but because everyone knows Mark Twain it gives a little bit of credibility to whatever you're writing so the quotations are useful and you want the students to remember that quoting somebody that most people know is usually more effective one question I had growing up I remember being in high school a little bit confused about simile and metaphor I was confused about many things in high school and those seemed like the least important things to be thinking about but then I had a teacher who kind of clarified it he said okay a simile is when you're comparing two things and they're similar that's why it's simile and it could be true right so he could look like a statue right so he stood like a statue that's a simile it could be true you're using like or as to compare two things a metaphor is essentially saying something is something which it is not so if you say my brother was a statue well that's not quite true because he's still a living breathing human being we hope and so the way this high school teacher put it he said it's easy just remember similes can be true but metaphors are lies which is why politicians prefer metaphor <laughs> which I thought well you know that kind of stuck in the brain because of the humor of it but there's nothing evil about it it's not really a lie good heavens the book of John is full of metaphors I am the vine you are the branches that's a more powerful way of painting the picture than saying I'm like a vine and you're like branches right so you want to use whatever you can to help the students understand that idea and then what's exciting is once you teach some of these decorations and require them to try to do them in their writing they will start to see them all over the place and so that's that's very useful the minimum rule is one decoration per paragraph and as soon as you've taught three and you've got three paragraphs then 
you would encourage the students to use one different decoration in each of those three paragraphs of that composition. And as you teach more, it goes up. And the indicator would be to write DEC in the margin. I think at one point I used a dotted underline, but I don't do that anymore. And then I think the best way is to put it in italics. But of course, you always want to let the students know when they're marking their style techniques, that's for you and them. That's for them to show you they know what they were doing and that they did what they were supposed to, and it's going to match the checklist that they're turning in. One time, you know, I had a student who did a beautiful paper, only he had not removed the underlines for the dress-ups, the numbers for the openers, the italics for the decorations, and he turned it in for uh, some other teacher who couldn't understand why, you know, he was emphasizing so strongly which, you know, and although, like shouting at you with the underline. So be sure that when the students uh, turn in this paper for anyone else to read, grandma, the other teacher, the yearbook, or, you know, the school newspaper, or whatever you're doing, his blog post, be sure you remove all those indicators. That's just our in-house system so that we can communicate and understand that we're accomplishing what we're trying to accomplish. Uh, triples are pretty easy. You can basically do a triple out of anything. I mean, you can repeat words, you can repeat clauses, you can repeat prepositional phrases, you can repeat ING openers, you can repeat anything, really. And it's interesting uh, how it does work very nicely. One of the challenges, of course, of triples is to not get two words or three words that are too similar in meaning. So to write a sentence, he ran, sprinted, and dashed across the field. That doesn't work very well because although it's triple verbs, their meaning is too close. So it sounds redundant and unnecessary. So when you're repeating uh, adjectives or verbs or even nouns, you want to be sure that you're adding to the picture, not repeating the content, so to speak. One of the questions that kind of comes up when you're teaching the stylistic techniques chart is, what do you do about a prepositional opener that uses the same words as a clausal opener? So if you remember the openers, this is kind of where it becomes a little bit of a question because you've got these sentence openers. So if you look on your preposition list, you'll find the word since. If you look on the clausal, when, while, where, as, since, it's on both lists. As is on both lists. Uh, it can be a preposition. It can be a clausal. Sometimes you'll get to a point also where you can teach that there are some words that are on the preposition lists like after. And it also can make a clausal opener. It's not on the www.asia.b, but it would be an addition to that set of clausal openers. And so the question then comes, what's the difference? And the answer is this. Clauses have verbs. They usually have subjects, but they always have verbs. A phrase 
generally does not have a verb, or at least it's not a main verb that makes it into a clause. A couple examples here. Since is a good one because you can use it both ways. If you say, I have been working since 9 o'clock, well, since 9 o'clock, there's no verb. 9 o'clock is a noun, since introduces it, and so it's a prepositional phrase. If you wanted a prepositional opener, you'd stick that at the front of the sentence. Since 9 o'clock, I have been working carefully on this project, whatever, right? Now, what if you have a subject and a verb following the since? Since the war began. Okay? Since the time that the war began, but since the war began, you've got the war, noun, began, past tense verb, that's a clause. So if you wrote since uh, 9 o'clock, you've got a prepositional phrase number 2 opener. If you write since the war began, or since I got up, then you've got a number 5. What did you write? Clauses have verbs and clause have birds? You're getting confused, Julie. I think the way that joke goes is, what's the difference between a cat and a comma? And it's that the cat has claws at the end of its paws, and a comma has a pause at the end of its clause. I think that's right. Something like that. Anyway, so little tutorial. And that then kids can start to get that, and they can tell the difference and identify their phrases and clauses, their number two, number five openers. Again, grammar, teaching grammar within the context of the content. The minimum rule for triples, once you learn the idea, and it doesn't take very long to teach students the idea of triples, believe me. In fact, you just show them that, and kaboom, they're going to start doing triples all over the place. So, But the indicator would be to put it in italics or to put the word trip, period, in the margin. So if you're uh, turning in a typed paper, italics like the decoration. If you're turning in a handwritten paper or a typed paper with the indicators handwritten, then you put in the margin. We have a few advanced dress-ups. I won't go over these in detail now, but they are explained very well, uh, particularly in the new Teaching, Writing, Instruction Style Seminar Workbook, and that would be the idea of duals. So once you can do LY adverbs, strong verbs, and quality adjectives, then you can substitute the idea of a dual verb rather than strong verb, or dual adjective rather than quality adjective. The invisible who which is when you create a who which clause such as my mother who is an excellent teacher comma right my mother comma who is an excellent teacher comma stays up until the wee hours of the morning preparing fascinating science experiments for us to do. In that case you can remove the who is or the which is replace that with a comma or leave the comma there and you get a grammatical construction known as an appositive where you rename the subject you rename something so my mother comma an excellent teacher comma stays up 
till late at night preparing fascinating experiments for us. So that idea of then if who or which is followed by is, are, was, or were, you can often remove that, replace it with a comma, and you get what uh, we call, because it's romantic and fun, the invisible who, which. We also have teeter-totters and a noun clause. I'll let you explore that on your own. These advanced dress-ups, by the way, are really best given to second or third year students or if you're teaching you know high school or college you could give them as an advanced technique to the students in your class that are mastering things quickly if something's if, if the whole checklist is easy and people are getting bored with it well then that's the time to go to an advanced dress up but uh, don't stress and don't press you don't have to do it you know immediately you've got plenty of time in most cases and the rule regarding the advanced dress-ups would be that they replace the normal dress-up. So if you did dual verbs, that you would underline dual verbs, you don't have to have that plus now a strong verb. So the, the advanced dress-up replaces the first kind of beginning dress-up. And then you just underline from the first verb all the way to the end of the second verb containing whatever's in between those two, etc. There's some good examples of all of these in the seminar workbook. I see Julie posted page 187. So, And uh, if you would like to have a more lengthy discussion on teaching grammar and why grammar workbooks often don't work, I mean, how many of us have had a child go through three or four years of blah, blah, grammar, blah, blah, language arts, and still not be able to find the verb in their own sentence. Why, why and how does that happen? And what's the solution? Listen to our podcast, episode 26, and I would assume maybe 28, uh, part 2. But the grammar discussion is very good, and we do have some materials that are excellent for teaching grammar in the context of editing. So fix it, uh, grammar and editing using classic stories and uh, so you can enjoy that and here's an idea that one of my old longtime teachers she's been doing it as long as I have almost she found that the kids would come up and say things like you know if I just didn't have to force in this last technique this paragraph would be just perfect but you know if I have to force it in it's just going to be less than perfect, as good as I wish, can I please not do it? Well, you know, how do you say no to that? So the idea of the left behind list is that you could have students, one per paragraph maximum, not do one of the techniques in the paragraph, but attach a separate paper and write a sample sentence that demonstrates their ability to do that technique in the one that they left out. So uh, you don't want this left behind list to get confused with the left behind. Not confused with those people. This is just you're intentionally not doing it because doing it wouldn't improve your paragraph at all, but instead you're kind of proving that you know how to do it and you can put it into the paper on a separate sheet of paper. I think that's a good compromise. And then the last thing really to discuss at the end of this is when do you graduate? 
you know, what what's the whole point of the checklist? Why do we make people do five dress-ups, six sentence openers, a decoration, a triple, advanced dress-ups? Why do we make them do all that stuff in every paragraph of a seven-paragraph essay? It seems uh, overwhelming, unfair, it's, it's too hard, blah, blah, blah. Well, one thing that, that I hope is clear to all of you out there teaching this, the purpose of the checklist is not to make the papers better. It might make the papers better, but the purpose is not to make better papers. The purpose of the checklist is to train better writers. And you could lose, use lots of analogies from playing blindfolded, running with weights, doing exercises for the sake of getting stronger. Not because you're going to do that forever, but because while you're doing it, you're exercising those particular muscles that will make you a better athlete or make you a better musician in the end. And so when the students can do the whole checklist and it's easy, meaning without much help and doesn't sound too goofy most of the time, that is the time when they can do the whole list without complaining and it sounds pretty good, then you say, you know what, you've learned it all, you graduate. Now, go forth and use or don't use the stylistic techniques as is appropriate for what you're doing. And so that really is the point at which you see how it all comes together and how the student's individual style starts to develop. Because over the years, they're developing a repertoire of techniques. When they graduate from the requirement, they then can experience the combination or permutation, the variation, the selection or non-selection of various techniques at various times. And they start to develop more their own voice. And so I would counter you know, critics who say, oh, well, if everybody used the same checklist, everybody would sound the same. Well, that's true to some degree, although I don't really find that it stifles anyone. However, once you graduate people from the checklist, then they really are able to exercise the techniques they've learned for creativity. So that's uh, very happy. All right, some resources. I mentioned a word right now earlier. You can click on that. We have a very fun game called Dress Ups, Decorations, Delightful Diversions. It's a wonderful a game to help children learn to identify and be familiar with some of these stylistic techniques, uh, particularly as they come up in literature. My favorite of those is simile shenanigans. It's a wonderful game to play with students, so you might enjoy that. That's an ebook, so that's real cheap. Our portable walls, they come in quantity. We have our writing tools app. We have our forum. We have our Magnum Opus magazine. And we have our blogs and podcasts and all that stuff, too. Anne asked quite some time back, I wanted to be sure and answer this question before we wrap it up here. She said, would you have a child copy a poster? How to make it kinesthetic? I think that it would be fine, actually, Anne, to have the children copy the poster and make their own version of it. They could decorate it, though, that way they want to, and then their poster could replace your poster. So 
I think there'd be a lot of value in that. One of the things that I will do as a homework assignment is I will diagram out the story sequence chart, have them copy it on their paper while I'm doing it on the board, and I'll say, okay, next week there's going to be a quiz, or in two weeks there's going to be a quiz, and I'm going to ask you to write out the story sequence chart exactly the way we've got it right here on the board and from memory. So practice at home. Write it out, see what you remember, compare this one with what you had, uh, try it again, compare, try it again until you can write this out exactly like we did in class here. And I think that's a, a good option because it helps them internalize that. And of course we know that the only time that we really know what we know is when we communicate that to someone, either in writing or in speaking, public speaking, or teaching it to someone else. So yes, I think there could be some value in that. I wouldn't necessarily overdo it or you know stress any particular child, but that is a that is a good one. Well, I don't know. Either you all don't have questions because everything's so perfectly clear now, or you're half watching Lemony Snicket series of unfortunate events out of the side of your eye while you're tuned into the webinar. I don't know which is going on, but I do appreciate you joining us tonight. Julella, is it possible to teach multiple levels of writing without doing multiple curricula? Yeah, in fact, that's what we're all set up for. You can use one source text with a third grader, a sixth grader, and a ninth grader. And so you have one source text, you make the outlines talk about it together, and then you give each of them a different checklist so that they can be challenged at a different level. In fact, the first, and in my opinion, the best of all of our theme-based writing books is the Bible-based writing lessons, which does exactly that. It gives a source text, Bible story source text, and then it has a level A speed, a level B speed, a level C speed. So it's got three different checklists in one book so that you can use that with a widely mixed age group of students. And that'll work in the home. It'll also work in the classroom. Kim is asking the question that Julie is going to have to answer, which is where is the Fix-It Grammar webinar? And voila, Julie did it before I even got to it. So uh, I think my teacher, Dr. Suzuki, said the measure of a man's greatness is his speed. So there you have it. The great Julie speedily making the link available so you can all watch that Fix-It webinar. All right, well, I think that brings us to the conclusion. And I do hope that you will tune in to our podcast. We've had a lot of fun making those. And they are now, well, I don't know if there's 100 episodes or not, but we've been doing it for a long time. And we have quite a library of interesting podcasts on all various different subjects. And then, of course, our monthly newsletter and the Magnum Opus magazine. So that brings us to the end, pretty much on time. Thank you all so much for joining us. I hope you have no ice storms that are persistent where you are that are preventing you from uh, doing what you need to do and enjoying uh, the January. And that if you haven't already, get back into the swing of things with structure and style and perhaps join us next month 
if you want a review and refinement of Unit 6, summarizing multiple references. So with that, maybe we can get our webinar assistant to start the beautiful fade out music and go have a great evening watching Lemony Snicket or whatever you like to do in the evenings. Thanks so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, you can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes or Stitcher, or just visit us each week at IEW.com slash podcast. Until then, on behalf of Andrew Poudois and the team at IEW, I thank you for the privilege of allowing us to partner with you on this educational journey toward better listening, speaking, reading, writing, and thinking.